RX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. This hour, we're going to talk all about unfinished business in the arts. But first, let's raise a glass. In my family, we think the wine you drink the most should be the best. We like Paul Masson's Burgundy. Toward the end of his life, Orson Welles was better known for making commercials, like that one for California wine, than making movies. His filmmaking life had begun brilliantly with Citizen Kane, which he wrote and directed at age 25. But then his career foundered. He decamped to Europe, and by the 1970s and 80s, lots of people considered Wells somewhere between self-indulgent and self-parody. We will sell no wine before it's time. Yeah, I mean, I think the public perception of late Orson is that, kind of a has-been doing wine commercials. This is the documentary filmmaker Morgan Neville, best known for 20 Feet from Stardom, which won an Oscar in 2014, and earlier this year, Won't You Be My Neighbor, his lovely portrait of Fred Rogers. The fact of the matter is, he was taking all of that money and making films. I mean, he said, as an actor, I am a prostitute, but as a director, I remain virginal. Starting in 1970, Orson Welles was pouring his money and effort into one movie in particular, The Other Side of the Wind. And this film kind of consumed him for for many years. He tried to finish it for the rest of his life. And in fact, he died in 1985 with the movie still unfinished. He'd shot hundreds of hours of footage, but before and after his death, it was ensnared in these Byzantine financial and legal complications for decades. The governments of France and of Iran were part of the mess. I mean, it's probably the most famous movie never released until now. Because now, almost half a century after he started shooting The Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles' last film, a version of it, is finally out. Movies and friendship, those are mysteries. A mystery may reveal, it never explains. Just like you, Mr. Anaphon. Just like me and God. If it weren't for the difference in sex, how could you tell us apart? The Other Side of the Wind has been assembled and finished by the director Peter Bogdanovich and producer Frank Marshall, both of whom were part of the original production. And you can see it on Netflix as of November 2nd. But probably more interesting to more people than Wells' movie is the epic and fraught tale of its making, which is where Morgan Neville comes in. I knew about the film, and I just kept thinking if I could ever get my hands on this footage that's been locked away for decades. I would love to make a documentary about it. And voila, his new documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, superbly chronicles that story. And it, too, is coming now on Netflix. The Other Side of the Wind is a movie about a film director at the end of his life that comes back to America to finish a movie that he can't finish. And obviously, this is a very meta story because this is exactly what was happening in Orson Welles' life at the time. And, you know, even though Orson hated to ever think of his own movies as being autobiographical, right. they were 
all autobiographical in different ways. Well, and this one, so clearly, I mean, the central character, played by John Huston, uh, is an aging, famous film director. So not only is The Other Side of the Wind an unfinished film about the fictional making of an unfinished film about the film world and contains a film within the film and a documentary crew shooting the director making the film... So here's your documentary about yes. the whole thing, right? I mean, it's the kind of thing people say, oh, makes my head explode. Orson was not shy of being meta about these things. And then my approach to it was to be very open about the documentary we're making about the documentary, about the feature, about the filmmaker. <sighs> I basically did audio interviews and had a camera person document me doing audio interviews because I wanted to show the mechanics of me actually doing the interviews. You know, and in a way that was the other side of the wind, but it's also Citizen Kane, which right, is framed right. with a journalist interviewing people about who Charles Foster Kane was. Right. Um, I want to uh, watch a clip with you of your doc, which is called uh, The Love Me When I'm Dead. This is, is Orson Welles talking to some reporters in the 1970s about this movie, The Other Side of the Wind, that he was then working on. What will really be the big basic differences between this picture and anything else you've ever done? Because everything else I've ever done has been controlled. Every frame is controlled. But I would like to take a whole story and make the picture as though it were a documentary. The actors are going to be improvised. Have you done that kind of thing before with other films? Nobody's ever done it before, you know. But that seems to me like shooting and shooting and aren't you afraid the end result won't have any control? I not a work. bit. No, I really am not. <laughs> Prophetic, that reporter. <laughs> Absolutely. What he's talking about there and what became kind of the big theme, particularly of of his later directing process, was he came to believe that the director was somebody who presides over accidents. Right. And he says that many, many times. He does. And that's his that's his job description. I think most filmmakers try to avoid accidents, but Orson leaned into them. And if things were going too smoothly on a production, he would be the first person to throw a hand grenade into the situation. So this movie of his, The Other Side of the Wind, is supposed to be taking place over one night at basically a single location, which is funny because, as you show in your film, Orson actually had to recreate this setting in different countries over all these years and then fake that it was happening in the same place. We just heard him say that he meant it to look like a documentary, documenting this this wild party. It's a birthday party for this film director, right. Jake Hannaford. Played by John Huston. Played by John Huston. The idea is there are cineasts and film crews and film students shooting every angle of it in every imaginable format, and that what is constructed at the end is all the scraps from this party from all these different cameras put together into a documentary. We're the close-up on Hannaford people. And these ladies are from okay. life, I guess. Okay, look over here. I'm independent. Mister from the Film Institute. So it's a found footage film, which... If it had come out at the time, I think it would have been the first found footage feature ever done. Yeah, very, you know, 21st century avant-garde seeming, right? So many people talked about the fact that if Orson was around today, how much he would have loved the fact that you could shoot a movie on a phone and edit it on a laptop. No kidding. And when you look at the kind of editing he was doing, sometimes hundreds of edits in a scene. I mean, absolutely staggering editing. And he was doing it the old-fashioned way on a flatbed, a Steenbeck with physical tape and film yeah. is unbelievable. 
Let's watch a clip of the other side of the wind uh, of this party uh, that demonstrates his his loose mockumentary style. Uh, in this scene is is Peter Bogdanovich, the real-life director of Last Picture Show and Paper Moon, who is playing a movie director uh, and here arguing with a, a film critic character and with John Huston, the film director John Huston, also playing uh, a film director. I mean, how much harm can you do to the third biggest grocer in movie history to make that much? How marvelous. Yes. Uh, did you know that when his own production company goes public, that your friend there stands to walk away with $40 million? Yeah, and she's going to say that I'm just going to keep on writing that I, I, I stole everything from you, Skipper. I'm never going to walk away from that. But it's all right to borrow from each other. What we must never do is borrow from ourselves. Come on. <laughs> I mean... This movie seems so different than the movies we know Orson Welles for. I mean, you know, Magnificent Ambersons, uh, Lady from Shanghai, or Citizen Kane, they seem so precise and so rigorous. And this is so, like, let's go crazy, kind of Dennis Hoppery late 60s. He was very aware of what was happening in, in the film world at the right, time. Right, right. And it's worth saying that the movie, within the movie, In the Other Side of the Wind, is this satire, essentially, of atmospheric European cinema, films right. like Antonioni. Right. This is the movie that, that Houston's character is making, pieces of which we see, the, the film within the film, in these long, groovy, semi-psychedelic scenes uh, with no dialogue. It's basically a guy following a woman. Yeah around it, a city. And there's some beautiful images he makes for this kind of satirical version of this European cinema. And he kind of felt like, oh, I could do that in my sleep. You know, are you right. kidding? You know, so you want some of that? Here, here's some of that. Right. So at the end, when he died, there was all this uh, film tonnage that he'd shot. What shape was it in? And were, were you working with Bogdanovich's team as they pieced together Orson's film? We were doing two projects at once. You know, we were getting the footage at the same time, day after day. But there was kind of a firewall between the two films. So we were making our documentary uh, on our own. And then there was another team of people led by Peter Bogdanovich and Frank Marshall who were restoring the film and trying to actually finish Orson's feature. So that was a gargantuan task. So there are about 100 hours of dailies. And the thing is, Orson shot this over years. So, you know, a normal movie would have a shooting ratio of maybe 7 to 1. This is a ratio of maybe 50 to 1. So there was so much more footage. And, of course, the way Orson shot it willy-nilly over years and many different continents meant that it was odds and ends and scraps and, of And course, different formats, right? Different formats, Super 8, 16, 35. And so as we were working on the film, the footage was coming in in dribs and drabs. So oh. every day you would get a batch of odds and ends. It was like random puzzle pieces and you wow. didn't know how they belonged and what they fit into. But also normally what you would do on a feature is you would have, you know, script notes and um, script supervisor who carefully right. organized everything. Right. There was none of that. They weren't even sure if Orson had actually shot the entire film. He had said he had shot the whole right. film, but Orson said a lot of things. Right. That, you know, right. so it was really a puzzle to put together. Right. I want to watch another clip um, from one of the many meta scenes in uh, The Other Side of the Wind, which is Wells' film. Describe what's going on as we watch together. And if there is a bomb, when does it blow up? Well, well we, we, we don't actually know. So this is Jake Hannaford's producer pitching Jake's new film to the studio boss. What do we know? 
you, you better ask Jake. I'd better read the script. The studio boss is a thinly veiled version of Robert Evans, who was running Paramount at the time. Oh, there isn't one. Jake is just making it up as he goes along. He's done it before. Now, in that scene, what, what's, is there a script? There is no script. From watching your documentary and watching the film, one wonders, like, was there a master plan or, or was it too much making it up as you go along? How, how, do you have a sense of, like, what was he really doing as he was doing it? Well, there was a script. The thing was, very few people ever saw it, and he constantly rewrote it. So virtually every night at the end of shooting, he would start writing more pages. And those pages would sometimes be given to the actors, sometimes not, sometimes kind of randomly. The overwhelming sense I got from everybody I talked to was, I have no idea what this movie's about, but Orson does. So as much as there was mass confusion on the part of the crew, everybody was certain that Orson knew exactly what he wanted. Right. What do you think, though, looking at it in retrospect as the figure out of this puzzle, did he? I'm not sure, (laughs) honestly. I think there were times when he did, but I think he just kept reinventing it. I think he would have an answer, and as soon as he had that answer, it would slip through his fingers, and he'd say, well, what could it become now? It was constantly morphing, and then as he was editing, it was being reinvented one more time, and he believed in that, the idea that it's never uh, It's all in the editing, he says, in your film. He does. And he believed that. He believed uh, you could make it into a completely different movie in the edit. Right. And whatever one might say about this film, he, he, he had ambition for it being his greatest work. It's always my next work is my greatest. Exactly. And it's incredibly ambitious. I mean, one thing I will say is that when it came to his art, he had no sense that it was beneath him to do whatever it took to right. make his films the way he wanted to make right. them. So if it meant that he had to crawl into the backseat of a car with a blanket over his head to sneak onto a back lot to get a shot for free, he would do it. The, the, this long six-year process of filming Other Side of the Wind uh, obviously tested lots of the relationships in his life. You focus on one that I knew nothing about in your film, uh, about his cinematographer, a guy called Gary Graver. Tell us about him. I mean, Gary is really the person who this is all kind of a tribute to. I mean, Gary was somebody who basically gave his life for The Other Side of the Wind. He was a cinematographer, kind of a working B-movie cinematographer in Hollywood. When he heard that Orson Welles had come back to America and was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel, so Gary calls Orson. To my surprise, he answered the phone. Hello? I said, oh, uh, Orson Welles? Hello. I said, I'm Gary Graver. I'm an American cameraman. Come and talk to me. I've got to talk to you. I want to talk to you now. And he said, get over to the Beverly Hills Hotel right away. Wow. And so Orson and Gary begin this collaboration where Gary ends up shooting everything Orson directs for the last 15 years of his life. Gary was somebody who believed the other side of the wind would legitimize him as a filmmaker and as a cinematographer. And the more elusive it became, the more kind of tragic it becomes to me. Gary went through multiple divorces during this time. He didn't get to see his kids much, and he couldn't have a normal cinematographer's job. So, Because Orson might just call him and say, hey, I need you here and wherever. Exactly. Orson 
could make incredibly unreasonable demands of the people around him. And when people couldn't ultimately live up to those demands, he would see this as evidence of his view of human nature, that people weren't trustworthy and faithful and people could betray him. Gary was the one person who never betrayed Orson right. because he sacrificed everything in his life for right. Orson. Uh, John Huston, he directed great films, uh, Maltese Falcon, The African Queen, The Man Who Would Be King. And he acted a lot, especially when he was older, like in Chinatown. Uh, getting to see him here, uh, whoa, a new John Huston movie is, is a real treat. It is. I, I'm a huge Huston fan. And what's really interesting is that John Huston and Orson were part of a club that maybe just was the two of them. You know, that they were both actor-directors. They both came from the same generation. And I think they both loved and respected each other tremendously. There weren't a lot of people that I think Orson felt that way about, yeah. like he did about John Huston. And manly men who could make fun of being manly men. Exactly. And all that. Yeah. Like, I think they really, really enjoyed each other. And Orson acted in three of John Huston's films, too. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. But Orson kept feeling that perhaps I should be playing this role. Right. But if I play this role, everybody's going to think it's me. Yeah. And I don't want people to think it's me. And he said the only person in the world who could play this role is John Huston. Yeah. Your film is delightful, and it's very fast-paced. Not, not to say frenetic, but fast-paced. And this unusual pace as well. And it has these uh, brief, funny... Uh, cinematic punctuations throughout and a kind of occasionally comic uh, scoring. It's it's just terrific. But it's not like your work, right? Was part of your thinking like, eh, I, I want to make a movie that Orson Welles would have liked? Sure. <laughs> I felt like I had not just permission but responsibility uh -huh. to take chances. Uh -huh. Because if you're spending that much time looking at a character like Orson and seeing how many extreme chances he took at every possible turning point, um, it inspires you to right. say, you know, this is an opportunity to do whatever I would normally do here. Let me think about how to do it differently. Right. To do a down the middle straight yep. making of yep. documentary would be doing him a huge yep. disservice. Uh, you released earlier this year another great documentary about another iconic American uh, media figure, Mr. Rogers. And I saw this new thing called television and I saw people throwing pies in each other's faces. And I thought, this could be a wonderful tool. Why is it being used this way? He and Orson Welles seem as close to opposite uh, figures of humanity as one can imagine. But they're both quixotic, singular characters, right? They are. They are. I mean, I've, I've just started to think about this because I knew people like you would be asking me about it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for being of service. In that um, but when you think about somebody like Fred Rogers and Orson Welles in the same sentence, I think one thing that unifies them is they were people who really didn't care what the popular opinion was. Right. People who right. marched to their own drummer, who really had their own vision that really worked in kind of a, a pure way. I mean, they were kind of pure artists in right, that way. I right. mean, there were people who said, this is what I want to do. I don't care if it makes money. I don't care if people like it. I don't care if it goes against conventional wisdom, but this is what I believe. Morgan Neville's new documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, is out on Netflix, which is where you can also see the brand new 40-year-old Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind. If you're planning a double feature, I would definitely advise watching the documentary first. And 
For the record, Morgan and I have worked on some projects together that, appropriately, have not yet come to fruition. Maria Schneider conducts her own jazz orchestra, 18 pieces that sometime blast like an old big band, but mostly plays music that's more intimate. And she is a hugely ambitious songwriter who takes a kind of classical music approach to composing jazz. Schneider grew up in Wyndham, Minnesota, population 4,600, and you can hear the Midwestern in her voice. She doesn't put out new albums very often, so when I heard that she was working on one a couple of years ago, I paid a visit to her cozy Manhattan apartment slash studio. It's called the Thompson Fields, and it's, it's about this farm back home. And I had walked to the top of the silo just a few years back and looking at the bean fields and thinking about all the families that I know, all the farms. And farm- by beans, we mean soybeans. Yes, soybeans, yes. <laughs> and, and just thinking about the generations and our families and the stories and seeing the, the wind blow across these beans and just feeling the spirits and the, you know, the layers of life there in the seemingly empty vastness of it all. Now, how does that, though, when you get back to here, become music? Well, first of all, when, when I first start writing something... And I'm this this particular song. It first came to me in the laundry room, um, and it was this. And you know, so I'll be sitting here writing something like that, or hearing something like that, and all of a sudden, as I'm listening to that. I'm transported to on top of that silo. Uh So this particular um, piece, if I'm just kind of going through here to see if I can find. um, Um, eventually this moves on and and it goes to the key of A flat and then this B chord starts happening The trombones keep hitting this, but at this point, the pianist Frank starts playing, or maybe in the key of, and so and he's he so he he starts playing in bitonally against this this B to somehow get the feeling of these different things happening, and and now what I've got in my head is that maybe I'm going to want the guitar player maybe to start playing an F. I don't know. And then maybe the piano. So that it's almost very Ivesian. 
It in, is. In, in, in its idea. And you and when you say you might have the guitarist do this, you don't know yet. I don't know. I have to talk to him about it, you know, and maybe having him do something with a lot of reverb so it almost feels like it's there's another tonality in there. I mean, we've been working on this thing for a while, and I'm, I'm not quite satisfied yet. So, you know, it's, it's like a work in progress. And the trick is when you're dealing with improvising musicians, and I want this effect, and I'm not happy until I am sitting on that silo and I am feeling... And I am seeing all these families and all these, my parents, friends who are gone. When I feel that they're there, then I know we've got it and we don't have it yet. So yeah. I have to try to describe what this is that I want. That's the composer Maria Schneider. So was she able to finish that piece and get it just right? We followed her for a whole year to find out. And that's ahead on Studio 360. Studio 360. It's hard to know what exactly makes any sort of creative artist ready to declare a piece of work finished. Or what accounts for especially productive runs while they're working on pieces. Those uncanny minutes or hours of focus when you're so immersed in what you're writing or painting that the rest of existence just sort of melts away. How does all that work? That's what Heather Berlin tries to figure out. She's a cognitive scientist at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, studying the neuroscience of imagination and creativity. A couple of years ago, when I was trying to meet the deadline for my book, Fantasyland, I invited Heather into the studio to talk about all this stuff. And I started by asking her, point blank, why is it so hard sometimes to finish a creative project? People come in with these grand and great and interesting ideas, and you have to say, well, there's that, and that's really interesting, but there's also the practical aspect is you want something that's going to be feasible to do in this given amount of time that you have. And it's very hard when we have our ideas to let go of them. But to maybe say, it's okay if I don't touch upon all these yeah, things yeah, yeah. Uh, and just let it let it go. Um, not that I want to uh, medicate myself, but <laughs> what, what are those medicines that, that make one more creative, theoretically? I mean, there's there's really no prescribed medication. There are You'd medications, have a good practice if you did that. Though. Yeah, I should start thinking about that. There are medications which are called cognitive enhancements that can help you become more productive, but productive. Activity doesn't necessarily correlate with creativity. Right, right. So there is no real magic pill. I will we get there, though? If we can, we will. Will we? I mean, some people think that certain psychedelic drugs, right. things like mushrooms. Yeah. Um, those so you're of, telling me to drop acid? <laughs> not acid, but maybe a little mushroom. Okay. That could, you know, just help you think a little bit outside the box. I mean, yeah. whenever you get your brain in a different brain state, yep. you're going to have different types of thoughts. And you might make novel connections that you didn't think of before. For sure. So when we are being creative, what is happening in the brain, both what you can measure and and in general? What do we know about what the brain is doing when we're being creative? So there are different 
types of creativity. So we know a little bit about what's happening when you're being spontaneously creative or sort of in the moment improvising. So what you're having is basically an increase in the internal generation of ideas. It's coming from within. You don't need any external stimulus for this. And a decrease in a part of your brain that has to do with your inner critic, your sense of self, your filter system that has to do with um, making sure that you conform to social norms. So you're in a state of this free flow. If we can define it a little more narrowly, when a composer is composing or a painter painting or a writer writing. Yeah, I mean, part of the issue is, you know, how do you define creativity? And that's been one of the kind of blocks for being able to study this phenomenon in the lab. But recently, there's been some creative ways that we can look at creativity. And and that's by putting artists in an fMRI machine and looking what's happening when they're actually creating something. Right. But what does that tell us about creativity? I'll give you an example. Some of the Preliminary studies have looked at rappers when they're rapping. So you have a rapper in an fMRI machine doing a memorized piece, and then he's doing an improvised piece. This this is your work, right? This original study was done by Charles Lim and his group, and now we're looking at a larger group of rappers and looking at audience feedback as Uh well. And there was another study which also looked at jazz musicians when they're doing memorized versus improvised playing on a keyboard in a scanner. There seems to be what's emerging is a certain pattern of of activation when people are in that improvising state compared to the memorized state. Uh And the same people doing essentially the same thing, although they're making it up as they go along in one case. Exactly. Exactly. So in one case, we show them random images and they have to incorporate those. Oh, so they have to do improv. Yeah, exactly. It has to make sense. It has to rhyme. It has to stay on beat. It's quite a complex cognitive task to do. So it involves lots of parts of the brain. And I get that. And, Mm -hmm. And so what are you finding when they're actually improvising versus just reciting a thing that they've already written? So what we find is the difference between these two states, the memorized and the improvised states, is that when they're improvising, there tends to be a a pattern of activation where they have decreased activation in a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that part of the brain has to do with your sense of self, your sort of inner critic, making sure that your behavior conforms to social norms. So when they're improvising, that does what differently? Basically, you you lose your sense of self, Uh right? And also that filter, which says, okay, you know, these novel associations, that's not logical. You kind of release your inhibition. The second you become too self-aware, that kind of comes back online and you lose that flow state. Right. The other thing was that they had increased activation in a part of the brain called the medial prefrontal cortex. It has to do with the internal generation of ideas. So it's coming from within, combined with this kind of freedom, this lack of, of inhibition, and together that can lead to these very creative moments. And and so flow states, when they happen, uh, I mean, is there a range or is it usually a matter of minutes as long as the the set lasts or if you're writing for 10 minutes? Because many of us have experienced what we believe to be flow states when we're doing whatever creative work we do. Often you don't know because suddenly, oh, an hour passed. I don't. I didn't know mm-hmm. that. Is there a, is there a range? It definitely varies, and it doesn't have to just be when you're in the flow state in a creative state. So, for example, if people are engrossed in like rock climbing yeah, or athletics. you know yes. athletic activity, yes. they can enter this state. People or can, sex, I suppose. Yeah, oh. where you lose your sense of self and you do get decreased activation in dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That's what I always say during sex. <laughs> and right away, it takes. Yeah. A- um, people. Uh, Artists of various kinds talk about creative block. Is that a real thing or is that just a a, a kind of catch-all for I'm having a hard time working? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it means it's one and the same thing, you know, or, you know, some people when they're in that flow state, it just, a lot of people say it feels like it's flowing through me. It's coming from someplace else, you know, it's coming so naturally, I don't even have to think about it. But if you can't get into that flow state, and you're too, let's say, cognizant about it, so it's called deliberation without attention, you can only keep a certain number of variables in mind when you're thinking about something consciously. But if you let it go, you actually can come to a greater understanding because the unconscious can do much more complex processing. Really? So it's like the elves doing the uh, shoemaker's shoes in the middle of the night. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, I mean, creative people, it's like, you know, okay, you. I mean, you have to take in all the information and then go for a walk, go out, do something else. Because those people sit there and just obsess over thinking about it too too much, using your prefrontal cortex, you're actually limiting yourself. Right. So letting it go can actually help you get over, let's say, a, a, a a writer's block or a creative block. Heather Berlin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Heather Berlin is a cognitive neuroscientist and a professor of psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Coming up, the musician Alejandra de Heza thought that she had found her creative soulmate. We were just on this roll. It was pure creativity, pure life, pretty much. So, too good to be true? That story is next on Studio 360. Studio Today on Studio 360, we are talking about the challenge of knowing when a piece of creative work is finished. This particular song, it first came to me in the laundry room. This. Earlier this hour, we listened in on Maria Schneider, the jazz composer, who was in the early stages of composing an album for her jazz orchestra process is a complicated one. She relies on her musicians to improvise around musical ideas that she's come up with and help her come up with the solutions that then become part of the finished composition. I want this effect and I'm not happy until I am sitting on that silo and I am seeing all these families and all these my parents friends who are gone. When I feel that they're there then I know we've got it and we don't have it yet. When she was making her album, The Thompson Fields, Schneider took her entire ensemble, more than a dozen musicians, to her tiny hometown of Wyndham, Minnesota, so they could soak in the landscape and community feeling. Here is her pianist, Frank Kimbrough. We stayed out at the Thompson farm. They have room for about half the band to stay there. We can just kind of stretch out at his farm for a day or two. It's, it's beautiful because it's... I think she was referring to it as native prairie. Oh, there's nothing better than bringing this band to play the music for the people and the home that inspired it. Um, very moving for me. So you have almost moments ago finished, I understand. Yes. Yes, it's a great feeling. So you 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 mastered it today, whatever that means. Yes, the final touches on the final version that goes to the factory. And the title is finally. It's the Thompson Fields. As as you 
said it would be a year ago. Um, well, congratulations. I want to play a clip, actually, from from the conversation we had last year. You were talking about the title track, uh, which was still in the incubation stage. Now what I've got in my head is that maybe I'm going to want the guitar player maybe to start playing an F. I don't know. And then maybe the piano. And you and when you say you might have the guitarist do this, you don't know yet. I don't know. I have to talk to him about it, you know, and maybe having him do something with a lot of reverb so it almost feels like it's there's another tonality in there. And so did you talk to that guitarist about adding reverb? We ended up not using the guitar. <laughs> That's funny when I was listening to that. It's it is amazing to look back at your creative process and I could still add guitar, but we ended up just doing it with the piano and and Frank plays in two keys with his two hands, so I end up with three keys sometimes. Wow. And do your musicians, as you're composing, ever disagree with you, or are you just the general yes ma'am? Um, disagree. I don't think so much disagree, but, you know, we, we discuss things and... You know, sometimes when you're trying to get to something and figuring out a section and you're all doing it together, I think sometimes for them, occasionally, there's a degree of frustration if they sense that I'm not hearing it yet and they're trying to give it and they're the ones who are stuck playing it, wondering if I've heard it yet. You know, that can't be easy. And That sounds like a relationship. It, it, it is. I mean, like real, every relationship. It's a relationship that's been going on with these people for a lot of years now. I, I want to play uh, a bit of one of the recordings along the way in this project that you made. Uh, and we recorded these in the sound booth, so people will hear the engineers occasionally telling each other to make adjustments. So is this what we're hearing now, the first time you played that piece in the studio? Uh, in the studio, yes. But it sounds, that's not the take we used. <laughs> I can tell well, that. Tell me what you're hearing that wasn't quite right, that you wanted to fix in the subsequent takes. I'm hearing that there's a little bit of a lack of flow in the time. This piece has a... It, I wanted to capture some motion, so I think we're all kind of finding our way and... I think that our final version has a little bit more flow this to it. This isn't enough forward propulsion for you? Yeah. Yeah, well, here, and here it feels a little weak. Yeah, this definitely isn't the take. But, you know, not bad. Not let, well, <laughs> let's hear the final version on this album that you have just uh, signed off on. How does it feel to be done? This is a long process. Oh, it it is. I feel like I am literally crawling on my hands and knees to the finish line. It's a huge project. There's a lot of music and a lot of details. And you put so years into writing it, a lot of time into rehearsing it. I want to represent each soloist in a really good way. And 
I don't know. I put my heart and soul into these records. This one more than others, or do they all take this much out of you? They're all painful, but each each subsequent one feels like, oh, it was never this painful before. But then other people remind me that, yes, you cried before, and you know. Maria Schneider, thank you so much for letting us annoy you and, and hang around with you during this entire process. It's oh, been a pleasure for us. A pleasure for me. Thank you. That album came out in 2015. Her newer one is called Maria Schneider and SWR Big Band. So what if it's not your own procrastination that gets in the way of finishing something? What if it's more like fate? That's what happened to a band called School of Seven Bells. And their story begins as a real love story. In the 2000s, Benjamin Curtis was in a band called Secret Machines. He played guitar. At the same time, Alejandra Deheza was in another band called On Air Library. Ali and Benjamin met when their bands ended up on a tour together, and it really was kismet, like in a movie. There was just something that hit. It was like lightning, and I knew that we were definitely going to do something together in life, definitely, but also musically. It just kind of immediately went hand in hand. And that something became their band, School of Seven Bells. We started working on SVIIB the summer of 2012. It was just one of those things where we were just on this roll. And so we just went into the studio every day and spend like 12 hours straight just hanging out, writing music, recording it. We just had so much freedom. We were so happy. So that summer, it was just pure creativity, pure life, pretty much. Yes. We had wrapped it up. We had some demos, and we were basically going to tour for the fall. And then he got sick, and uh, in the beginning of 2013, um, we checked him into the hospital. My name is Brandon Curtis. I played in the band Secret Machines with my brother Benjamin. I was in Germany and I got a phone call saying that they were doing a biopsy, but it was to the point where they felt like they needed to start chemo without even getting the results of the biopsy. And a couple of days after that, he was diagnosed with a T-cell lymphoblastic lymphoma. And um, the minute that he got the diagnosis, they started him on chemo. After that, I think there was like maybe only a few times that he could leave the hospital just because I honestly don't know what made him more sick, if it was the chemo or if it was the cancer, but you couldn't tell at that point. He had been living in in the hospital for months. We kind of like set up in there and he had a lot of of stuff. He had his laptop and drives and little uh, USB keyboards and he's like stopped eating and but he was still kind of like spending hours a day in front of his laptop making music. Confusion was written during his treatment. He just started playing this synth. I'm not sure if I even knew he was recording or not, 
But we always had a mic set up and everything. So I was just kind of like singing into it and the whole thing was pretty improvised. pretty hard to uh, to even get the words out because we were both crying when we were recording this song. was like this moment that was so incredibly precious to us that we knew it and we just kept everything as it was that's how it came out When we were leaving that night, the night of his death, kind of packing up, putting stuff together, I was aware that this was important and that there was something to be finished in this bag or in this area, but I didn't have the energy or the um, inclination to really open it up. Honestly, I, I just it's such a blank to me that time. We didn't talk about what his idea for the music would be, other than he wanted Ali to have the opportunity to finish it. And he wanted Ali to be in a position to kind of make the record that she wanted to make. And if that were to, were to happen, then he would be happy with it. I'm Justin Meldel Johnson, and uh, I produced the band School of Seven Bells. Starting up a record again that, that was essentially in the hands of someone else entirely, who's not around anymore, was a really challenging task. On all previous School of Seven Bells records, Benjamin is the main musical content creator and the producer. So he has a language of his own. And I also knew that recording the record and finishing it would also go hand in hand with me needing to be ready to talk about it, because I really did want to. I wanted people to hear the story and, and hear everything that happened to make this record even possible. Everything was done in Benjamin's shorthand, and it was scattered across several hard drives and, and had very proprietary bits of software that was being used to create it and, and um, was, was very hard to replicate in, say, an entirely different studio environment. I'd been in the room with him running Pro Tools or Logic and just kind of helping him put microphones in front of speakers. And, and so I was aware of how things were set up and like the housekeeping aspect of digital recording labeling files, and so I knew how he was working. So with the help of Brandon, we basically took it all apart and put it back together again. A Blaze was one of his favorite songs. He was just like, immediately from the beginning, had this vision for this song. He just always had this like celebration in mind. It was hard to write these lyrics for me. 
but just when I started writing it, I just, there was so much that I wanted to get out at that particular moment. And I just wanted so much to tell him how much I loved him and how much I still loved him and just what a, what a force he was. I think that shows a great deal of strength on Allie's part, that she was able to kind of exert her personality onto this thing and still respect Benjamin's. It's taken this whole time for me to stop asking that question. What would he do here? I saw someone who had been through the gauntlet come out the other side and have not only her identity intact, but even more fully articulated. We wrote together for 10 years, so it's been a long process to try to get to the point where I can actually differentiate what my voice is. I feel like I'm figuring that out now, finally. School of Seven Bells' final album, S-V-I-I-B, came out in 2016. Julia Lowry Henderson produced our story. And Julia Lowry Henderson is also the maker of a fabulous podcast about Bikram Yoga as part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series. So now this hour of Studio 360 about finishing is finished. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. If things were going too smoothly under production he would be the first person to throw a hand grenade into the situation. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Contemporary art sells for crazy high prices. And we expect the artist to keep making art for art's sake? There is this sense we want the artist to be pure. The moment they start thinking about the market and will something sell or won't it sell, they're screwed. It's over. The price we pay for the prices we pay for art. Next time on Studio 360.